Hey, folks, mortgage rates have dipped to their lowest levels in recent history. And with home values up in many areas, now may be the perfect time to refinance your home. Whether you're looking to lower your monthly payments, free up cash for home improvements, or just pay off your home faster, a quick call to the one and only Stuart Wingo of Ameris Bank could save you money. If you're looking for competitive rates and exceptional service, call Stuart Wingo, 803-319-1777. That's 803-319-1777. You will save money just like I have so many times over the years. You can also visit him, amerisbank.com slash Stuart Wingo. Stuart Wingo, the man with the plan for all your mortgage needs. It's that time. Your fix is here. College football is a year-round discussion with these two. Here's J.C. and Morgan. Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered. Beginning right now. And a good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're deciding to listen to this podcast, we welcome you. It's another J.C. and Morgan, Mike Morgan of ESPN, SEC Network. He is J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports. We've got lots to talk about. Eventually, we'll get into the NFL draft. We'll get into NIL talk and some of the usual du jour. But uh, we've been red hot on the on the guests. We've had some good ones here. and We've got another good one today. Uh, SEC fans know Bob Kessling. Not just from Tennessee work, but uh, for Jefferson Pilot and other uh, national and, and regional venues. And of course, since 1999, he's been the voice of the Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, Bob Kessling joins us now. Bob, it's it's good to talk to you. And uh, it's funny, you and I have been crossing paths throughout the SEC since I was a, a young tyke calling SEC games on radio in 2000. But the, 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 the couple things snuck up on me when I read your bio. A, I, I thought for some reason, like it was 2005 that you got the Tennessee job. I thought you were still doing JP games for longer than 99. And B, did I read you were a walk-on on the football team? How did I not know this? Yeah, 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 I did. Uh, you know, it was uh, 1972 and um, when I graduated from high school, and I was, I was an okay high school football player. I wasn't, wasn't any special. And I was getting recruited by a bunch of small schools in Ohio, you know, Ohio Northern and Ohio Wesleyan and Muskingum and some of those places. So I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go to play high school football. And uh, I had a buddy, uh, one of my best friends. His dad knew Ray Mears from when he was at Wittenberg up near Dayton, which is that's where I grew up, Ohio. And Springfield is right next to Dayton. So anyway, my buddy's dad knew Ray Mears. And so they were going to come down to Knoxville to talk to Coach Mears about Jeff walking on the basketball team or being a manager for just getting involved in the basketball program. And they invited me to go with them. I'd never been to Tennessee in my life. And uh, so I said, sure. You know, I got nothing else to do. So I drive down there. They go to the basketball office. I walk down to the football office and I say, listen, what does it take to, to uh, walk on the football team here? And the secretary says, well, I don't know, but would you like to talk to Coach Bill Battle, who was the head coach at that time? I said, sure. Mike, I didn't have a, I didn't have a program or a piece of tape to prove that I even played high school football. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm in Coach Battle's office. He seemed to know uh, a little bit about our league because they were uh, recruiting a guy by the name of Gordon Bell from Troy, who's in our league, and he later went to Michigan. But he seemed to know our league, and he said he knew our coach. 
And so he was talking to me and he then said, let's walk down because we had freshman football back then. He said, let's walk down and I'll uh, introduce you to our freshman running back coaches, which were Kurt Watson and Don McCleary, which were two great backs at Tennessee. So they put on this film and they show me how the fullback works in their offense. They walk me back down to Coach Battle's office and they uh, Coach Battle says, here's a workout sheet. If you can get in school, we'd love to have you as a walk on here at Tennessee. I was flabbergasted. I mean, I, I, I didn't know these guys from, they didn't know me. And uh, so anyway, I called my dad and I said, dad, listen, I think I'm going to go to Tennessee. And he said, if you're a walk on, why wouldn't you just go to Ohio state? He was an Ohio state guy. I said, well, dad, uh, to be honest with you, going to Tennessee out of state is cheaper than going to Ohio state in state. And he said, go Vols. And so that's how it worked out. I got to Tennessee. So, we, you know, we had a freshman schedule. We played Notre Dame. We played at Alabama. We played Georgia Tech and Kentucky. And I got to carry the ball some. But I, I knew I was not going to be a great football player at Tennessee. And then and, and the life of a walk-on, even back then, was, is, it's really hard. And I just kind of decided, you know, this was fun. This was a great experience for me. But I need to go on and do something else. And that's kind of how I got into the broadcast stuff but I really I still have a bunch of buddies uh from that freshman year that I still stay in contact with we're still friends and uh, it was a great experience for me that's crazy I've never heard that story before and, and let me uh be a polite guest and, and and give you some pleasantries now he is Bob Kessling and Bob I can tell you uh it's always awkward to say these things when you're in person and you're passing and I always go to you when I'm doing a Tennessee game and just kind of chat but I, I've always been a big fan of your work I, I just I think you're a pro's pro um, you know, even after the football thing didn't work out, you have to have a certain skill level. You didn't just, you're very humble. You didn't just stumble into broadcasting. You've always had the voice. Uh, you've always had the acumen. And, um, again, I grew up not to make you sound that much older than me, but I grew up watching a lot of SEC on Jefferson pilot, like, like yeah. so many kids in the South. Well, and we need so, to explain to some people, Mike, yeah. that have no idea what Jefferson pilot what is. JP is. JP is now Raycom and, and it was Lincoln financial. And no, it was everything. you know, my connection to that whole group, Jimmy Rayburn, who is the, the guy who ran it, the Carolina Panthers hired me to do preseason games for five years. Uh, and, they made the hire, but technically our broadcasts were run by Jimmy Rayburn and, and that outfit, Rob Reichley, you Rob know, all Reichley these guys. Also, yeah. yeah. So that's, so for five years, I got to work with uh, some really good people. And I thought uh, our, our broadcasts and not saying this because I was involved, the production element and the quality and everything they put into it, it was first rate and, and the NFL thought so as well. Uh, so I, I know a lot of the people you got to work with that being said, I think for a lot of, I, I see, and you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, JP and those broadcasts, um, they get bagged on a lot, right? The production quality, the this, the that. I mean, look, regional cable is going to have – you don't have the resources that the CBS 330 game does. Yeah. Well, so Mike, you know, back – you know, it wasn't cable. It was over the air. Jefferson Pilot game. Well, yeah. well, yeah, but I, but, but it was what I, regional. It was a regional. It, that's what I mean. Yeah, it, it wasn't a true national network right. broadcast. Well, we to, I don't know. We went to twenty five or thirty states. I mean, it was. Oh yeah, no, it was big time. The, the reach was yeah. big time, yeah, was. Uh, and that's why again, so many people. Again, you're talking to two guys in their forties. So I'm. Try, I don't know what the line of demarcation is. You're right. If, if a twenty five year old's listening to this right now. Uh, maybe well, what Jefferson know. Pilot was it was what the SEC network is now. Correct. They did the they did the games that the networks didn't pick up. 
That's right. Uh, so we had, you know, we had a lot of Vanderbilt, South Carolina. We had a lot of Vanderbilt yes. and whoever they were playing and right, a lot right. of Vanderbilt on this game. So things like that. <laughs> a lot of Vanderbilt is what you're trying to say. Yeah, a lot of Vanderbilt. <laughs> we were like, we were like third or fourth on the pecking order, but right. it was, it was the 1230 slot that yes. we had no competition. Right. Uh, there were no other games up against us. Yep. And our audiences were huge because of the fact, you know, people would get up on, on Saturday morning well, let's, let's watch college football for a while before we either go to right. our game or we do something else. And they turn on that 1230 game. We're in the central time zone, 1130. Mm-hmm. And it was just a great way to kick off the morning. And and the, and the numbers were, were really good. And sure. fact, a lot of times the numbers for the JP games would beat the ESPN nighttime. Right. Games. And so uh, that's kind of it, it was a great uh, it was a great learning platform for me and. Uh, you know, it's funny, Mike, so many things, how you get involved in these different things and how and, you know, broadcasters all have different stories. But uh, I was a local uh, TV broadcaster in Knoxville at Channel 10, WBIR. We had a great run there. Uh, but so it was 1989 and the SEC tournament was going to be played at Thompson Bowling Arena at UT. I mean, on campus. And that's back, you know, the days it might go to Rupp Arena. It might go to Thompson Bowling, the places that had big arenas. But it very often did not go to on campus, but it did that particular year. And so a week before the game, Jimmy Rayburn, the producer, calls me and said, listen, one of our announcers can't be there. We need a guy to do interviews in between games and be a sideline reporter. Uh, you have to be there for every single game. You can't miss a game. You got to be there all the time. The only reason I'm calling you is that your TV station is our Knoxville affiliate. Uh, so if it was on Channel 6 or Channel 8, I'd be calling those guys. Uh, I don't have to put you up in a hotel room. I don't have to pay your per diem and I don't have to pay for a plane ticket. Do you want to work? I said, yeah. I didn't even ask him how much it paid, but that's how I got started with Jefferson pilots. I worked the tournament the next year. I worked the tournament again. And uh, then the following year that we started doing a pregame show. So I did the pregame show and then fill in play by play. Uh, And it was just a great experience for me. My, My first play by play opportunity for Jefferson pilot, get this. Tom Hammond, who was one of the great announcers we right. had on TV, we had Tim Brando and Bob Carpenter and a bunch of really good announcers. But uh, Tom got called away uh, for an Olympic assignment with an NBC. Mm-hmm. And so I was scheduled to do the, the pregame show. And they asked me, Jimmy, he said, can you do the game as well? I said, well, sure. And so it was Tennessee, Kentucky. It was at Rupp Arena on senior day. It was Pelfrey and Farmer. And all those guys, uh, it was Kaywood Ledford's last game at home at Kentucky. Wow. Dan Issel is my color guy. I'm <laughs> sitting at midcourt at Rupp Arena. I got Kaywood Ledford and Ralph Hacker sitting there. John Ward sitting right there. I'm at midcourt with Dan Issel. They're playing my old Kentucky home behind me. It's senior day at Rupp Arena. And I'm looking around saying, you know, if I get hit by a bus – going to the parking lot, I'll be fine. Cause it's not going to get much better than this. So, I, you know, Mike, we both can go back and say how fortunate and how blessed we've been, but you remember right. those special moments. And I, I guess the thing is I didn't screw it up uh, too badly. And they invited me back the next year to, to, to work again. So I was on a, you know, how you are in some of those days, you're on a game by game contract. That's kind of what I was on with Jefferson. Right. But had a, had a great run. And uh, so it started in 980, uh what, 1989 and ran until I took the Tennessee job in 99. So 10 years, that's good. And what people don't realize, and I say this all the time, without 
Jefferson Pilot. We don't have an SEC network. Like that right. kind of set the table. Uh, and and finally, it got to the point where, okay, you know, SEC sports in general are just too massive. Or it, it it should be a national platform. You know, I used to do games for, for CSS, yeah, uh, which, sure. which was, a, a, again, a regional cable network. And they had the rights to a lot of different things, whether it's SEC football, some basketball, the SEC baseball tournament. When nobody else was broadcasting college baseball on TV on a regular basis, CSS came in and said, OK, we're going to we're going to take that market. And then, of course, the SEC network comes along in 2014, which I've been fortunate to be a part of. But that blows everything else uh out of the water, but the, the the work that you guys did was so valuable. And as you mentioned, all those those ratings that you talk about, those did not go unnoticed by uh, people in Bristol and and you know the major networks saying, "Okay, we need to capitalize on this." And and the league obviously realized that there's a, a huge market there, and so now we have it. We have the triple header every day. On uh, the SEC network. And this is another thing. If you're 25 or even if you're 30 and you're listening to this, there was a time where not every college football game, even in the SEC, was uh, was broadcasted on TV. Not every SEC basketball game was broadcasted on TV. In fact, it was almost considered like a privilege to have a TV game. The rest of folks either had to go to the game or listen to a Bob Kessling on radio. Now we just take for granted that every game is going to be nationally televised. You know, we, we were on the Big Orange Caravan. In fact, we're winding it up. And, you know, we go around different venues and things like that. And uh, we, we've been to Nashville and, and uh, been to Atlanta, been to the Tri-Cities. Uh, so we've been uh, all, you know, around the state and that will continue. And so we had a guy in Chattanooga raising cane because not every Tennessee baseball game is televised. Right. I mean, I mean, we've, we've gone from <laughs> the, the privilege of having every single football game televised. Now they want every single baseball game. They want every single softball game on, on television. And it's uh, so it's a monster. It, it's, a, yeah. it's a growing monster, but that's a good thing. Cause there's some passion there for, for sports, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Mike Jefferson pilot was really a trailblazer. And they did the same thing in the ACC. I mean, they mm-hmm. went into the ACC too, and right. you know they were doing these games. And the and um, there might be one national game, and then Jefferson Pilot would come in and do two SEC, ACC games Saturday afternoon, and mm-hmm. those were much much watched, you know, television because you know it's Duke and North Carolina and some of these other games. If there was a one national game, then Jefferson Pilot would do these, the other games. So right. uh, yeah, I think it did set the stage and created a, a great demand for games on television. I, I grew up in upstate South Carolina and I'll tell you, those ACC games were on every Saturday. We get to watch Clemson. And uh, I remember Clemson at Duke in 1989. Uh, that was a pretty famous game. Spurrier was coaching Duke and beat them 21, 17. And, uh, it was Randon in Durham, and uh, that's when I first learned about Steve Spurrier. <laughs> that was uh, when that game happened. Uh, so uh, that was uh, those were much, that was much what mo, mo, uh, you know have to see TV uh, back when I was uh, growing up uh, back in there. This ACC telecast, and then basketball in the ACC too uh, was was huge. I mean, they Backer uh, and the Packer, they were, yeah, they were big time. unbelievable, unbelievable. So so I totally get it, but I. I've always loved Jefferson Pilot. I, 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 I think there's some nostalgia for it right now uh, around college yeah. football. To be honest with I get a call uh, in football season, and uh, Jimmy Rayburn said, okay, uh, we're taking you off this game. We're going to put you on Clemson and South Carolina. 
I said, Clemson in South Carolina. Uh, I, I said, why? Well, I'll explain it to you later. Well, uh, Sparky Woods was coaching at uh, South Carolina and Ken Hatfield was coaching at Clemson. Both of them are going to get fired after the game. Neither team is worth a flip. And so I go to, uh, I go to Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, how many markets is this going to be in? He said, three, you know, in the state of South Carolina, that's the only place it's going to be carried. I said, why is that? Well, he said, Strom Thurmond gave me a call this week and wanted to know why the Clemson South Carolina game wasn't on television. And Jimmy tried to explain it to him. And Strom Thurmond apparently said, well, you know that uh, I'm on this uh, one of these uh, Senate committees about insurance. And you don't think you'd want us probing into any of the Jefferson pilot uh, insurance. And they said, well, I guess not. So he said, Kessling, you're a low man on the totem pole. You've got uh, Clemson and South Carolina. And sure enough, both coaches got fired after the game. Oh, and was... I don't remember who even won the game. I do remember having lunch with Sparky. Sparky, of course, is a, uh, a Tennessee guy. So we had lunch the day before the game. And uh, he was kind of telling me, you know, it was like a guy walking the plank and we're getting ready to do it. But that's kind of the, the stuff you had going on. Back crazy. I, I believe that was 93. Not even uh, Clemson won yeah. that game, but it was yeah. 13. And both coaches did get fired. And, and Clemson was actually eight and three that year and went to the Peach Bowl. Tommy West, another Tennessee guy, took over for Hatfield and actually coached the Peach Bowl uh, as a new coach. And they beat Kentucky. Uh, but South Carolina was up 13 to three. Uh, with Steve Taddy Hill and, and some of those guys. And I think it was Carolina's second year in the SEC. Uh, and Clemson rallied with uh, just running the option and playing defense in 116. And, and, and that just – it shows you, like, again, if you're over a certain age, it's incomprehensible that a rivalry game would it's not, not be on TV. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it a step further. I'm going to go a decade later, 2004 or 2005, and I can't remember the year. So it's either Lou's final year or Spurrier's first year. Uh, again, neither team at that point was that good. And ESPN did not pick it up. So if ESPN doesn't pick it up, nobody's got it. It's an orphan. So I get a phone call saying, Mike, you're going to do it. on." And I did a lot of these games, pay-per-view. A lot of uh, SEC games that were not picked up on TV, we did on pay-per-view. And you'd pay your twenty nine ninety five, And, of course, any technical glitch that was out there, you know who hears about it, Bob. The announcers do, because clearly right. we're the ones pulling the switches and sure. operating oh, yeah. the cameras. Yeah. I didn't and, see yeah. So, so I'm sitting there and I'm going, I get to call a South Carolina Clemson game in 2004, 2005, on on television like this is fantastic this is a great opportunity and a phone call was made i believe by among other people the south carolina ad at the time mike mcgee to espn who they were still kind of inching closer and closer to signing that mega deal with the southeastern conference saying hey look we can't have our carolina clemson rivalry not on regular television we're asking people to pay thirty dollars so eventually they found a way to get it on TV, you know, ESPN, U or ESPN two, whatever it was, they found an outlet and our, and I prepared all week to do paper, pay-per-view. I believe my analyst was going to be Don Munson. who's now the radio voice at Clemson. And, uh, any long story short, we, we found out we were not doing the game. So we went from doing a pay-per-view game and we're all excited and we got all prepped up. And then finally, uh, they decided, no, this is, this is too important. We need to go ahead and make sure it's on linear television without pay-per-view. And nowadays, 
it would be incomprehensible to ever have, whether it's South Carolina, Clemson, Florida, Florida State, Georgia, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, NC State, all those games, you know, are going to be on a TV station week in, week out. Yeah. Uh, and, which, you know, Mike, the fans are the winner there. The, you know, those pay-per-view games, uh, it was all week long. You got phone calls. Well, how do we get this? How, I don't right. understand. Who oh, yeah. And uh, and you talk about bare bones. I did a bunch of those games too for Tennessee. Yeah. And you talk about bare bones productions. You're just oh. you're just happy to get on the air when it was time to start the game. So there, there are people in our industry, and you know them as well as I do. Uh, and I'm not going to name any names. Who, as an announcer, when something goes wrong technically, and inevitably it does. I don't care what network it is. Uh, that freak out. They start yelling and screaming at their producer and their director, and they're flipping out. And they're throwing things. And I just say to myself, look, I'm battle tested. I did pay-per-view games in the 2000s. I did CSS games where a ton of things would go wrong. We didn't have the budget. We, and you just knew how to roll with it. You didn't have a choice. And you yeah. took all the arrows if something went wrong. Because, again, nobody knows the producer's name or the audio guy's name. So you just, you just you know, it must be the must be the announcer's fault or whatever. How, why did I spend $30 on this crap? Uh, that's just that was the nature of the business. And now, uh, obviously, it's changed. What's changed for you? And I'm very curious, uh, going back to my radio days, I, I know uh, from other radio announcers, how hard it is to follow a legend. Mm-hmm. You take that job in 99, you follow John Ward. And, and look, the landscape has changed, as we all know. I don't know if announcers are going to be staying with one SEC school for 30, 40 years anymore. Um, it's becoming more and more rare. But back then, it was still a thing. Charlie Mack followed Bob Fulton at South Carolina. Not an easy thing to do. Scott Howard uh, followed Larry Munson. Not an easy thing to do at Georgia. So did that go into your head as someone who knows the business as well as you do? Like, yeah, this is my alma mater. Yeah, this is a great job. Yeah, this is what I was meant to do. But I'm going to have to hear for at least a couple of years, no matter how good I am at my job. Well, he doesn't sound like John Ward. He doesn't give the same call that John Ward does. I, I don't know. I miss John Ward. Did, did that go into your thinking at all? Sure. And I still get that. I even on the big orange caravan, you had big shoes to fill and you, yeah. okay, but I sure miss John. Those type things uh, all the time. Mike, I had more guys in the profession tell me not to take the job. Right. Than take it because of the fact of what Ralph Hacker went through up in Lexington yeah. following Kaywood Ledford. And I mean, that was a tough thing for Ralph. And Ralph was a good broadcaster. who had been working with Kaywood for years, but it wasn't an easy transition. And, um, you know, eventually Ralph just decided this is, you know, this isn't worth it. And in fact, he was one of the guys that told me, don't take it because it's going to make your life miserable. But I just felt that I had enough confidence in myself that if it didn't work out, I'd be able to find another job. It's your alma mater. And when they call, you got to listen to them. I was in a pretty good position, Mike, at the time, because I had, I was working for Jefferson Pilot, So I was doing the SEC games and Jimmy Rayburn had a contract extension for me on the table. So I could have stayed there. But at that time, you didn't know what was going to happen with, with Jefferson Pilot. Were they going to be able to keep the rights or was it going to this SEC network, which we'd all heard about? Mm-hmm. But I had a good job at Channel 10 here in town. I'd been at Channel 10 for 18 years. They wanted me to stay. They they had a contract extension on the table. And so I was weighing it back and forth. What should I do? Uh, and I and it's very rare in our business, Mike, where you've got two good options. 
and you got leverage. I mean, I had a little bit of leverage uh, with Channel 10 and with Jimmy at, at Jefferson Pilot because he knew that Tennessee was talking to me. And But I had leverage with Tennessee because I don't have to take this job. I can stay with what I was doing. And But it was a hard decision. And my wife finally stepped in because I asked her, I said, what do you think I should do? And she said, I'm glad you finally asked me. <laughs> she said, uh, you know, you're, our daughters are in middle school. They'll be off to college here pretty soon. Wouldn't you rather be tailgating with them after a Tennessee game instead of trying to catch a plane home from Starkville on Saturday night? That resonated a little bit with me, and uh, I was able to to uh, make the decision then, and I took the job, and I haven't looked back, and it's been, you know, what it is with social media now, I don't care. Mike, you could call the perfect game for the ESPN network, and you're mm-hmm. still going to get 20 or 30 people that think you suck, and you're no good, and why would you say that, and I can't believe you're doing these games, and so you gotta you gotta have tough skin. And and Doug Dickey told me that when I got the job. You know, it was funny. He the first day on the job, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do when I got to my desk at Tennessee. Cause I'm I was hired by the athletic department. I'm not I'm not a contract employee. I'm actually under contract to UT. So my Which job is big, was, by the way. A lot of the a lot of guys are not. I don't think your average fan knows that. Like I I was not a full-time employee. I had no benefits. Mm-hmm. I was on a year-to-year deal and got paid per game. You, the McHuberts of the world, you have a full-time position with the university. That's a big difference. Yeah, and that was one of the deciding factors for me as well because you, you do get benefits and you do get everything, and mm-hmm. and and you're you got some security uh, working for, for the university. But I remember the first day on the job, uh, Doug Dickey, who – we all call him, kind of called him John Wayne. When John Wayne showed up in your door, you know, frame there at uh, your office, it, it was either going to be really good or really bad, either way. So anyway, first day, I'm still trying to figure out how to work the phone, the computer, and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Bob, let's go to lunch. And he takes me to Naples Restaurant there on Kingston Pike. And we're sitting there. That was his favorite place to have lunch. We're sitting there. And after we order and we, we talk a little bit, he said, now, Bob, let me tell you. He said, you're going to have some people telling you you're the best and now in the world. Well, that's not true. You're somewhere around here, but you're not the greatest. And there are going to be some people that tell you you're the worst announcer in the world. Well, that's not true either. You're somewhere around here. You're not, you know, you're not down here, but you're not up there. You're here, you're around here someplace. He said, there's only one person that you have to please. And that's me. As long as you keep me happy, you're in good shape. Don't worry about it. And, and that gave me a lot of, a lot of confidence that, uh, that I could do this job. And, and, and another story that was really good. Uh, my first game was against Wyoming and we're doing the kickoff call-in show outside gate 21. Mike, you've seen it out there, the big plaza sure. out there. And it, we, huge crowds. I mean, we'd have a couple thousand people, the band marches by us and it's a great scene. And I, you can imagine I'm nervous as heck. I, I, I don't know what I've gotten into. Why in the world did I think I could take over for John Ward and, <laughs> You know, I've left the nest. I was had this nice little nest at Channel 10 and JP, and here I am out there. And uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the Ball Network, that game. And so we were, in, we were having all the announcers come back. Um, uh, George Mooney, Lindsey Nelson's daughter, uh, Nancy, came back. We honored we honored because Lindsey started the, the Ball Network. And then John Ward and Bill Anderson, we had them back for different games and honoring him. But the first game was George Mooney. And George was really, after Lindsey left, and we had a guy named Alan Stout that did the games for maybe a year or two. But then George Mooney came in, and George had this great voice, owned a bunch of radio stations across Tennessee. And George was the announcer for 16 years, I guess it was. 
So we invited George to come and be with us on the uh, uh, on the first broadcast of the year. So he's on there to kick off Colin show. So he's talking about the 56 Georgia Tech game, and he's talking about the 66 Alabama game and all these different games that he called and, and you know, Liberty Bowl game and this kind of – all these different great games in Tennessee history. And, it's, gosh, it was really great just to listen to him. And I said, well, George, it would be my honor – if you would come and sit in the booth with us, because he had tickets in the, you know, we had tickets for him in one of the boxes, but I said, why don't you come in and sit in the booth with me? And he said, well, that, that, that'd be, that'd be an honor. So I'd love to do that. So we're walking up, we get down with the show we're walking up uh, Philip former way. We're getting ready to go to the press box, go up to the booth. And George puts his arm around me and he says, rookie, just remember 31 years ago, they said there'd never be another George Mooney. So go up there and do the best job you can. And Great. that was just so comforting to me. And, and, and he was right. Right. Uh, and uh, my dad told me a story, too, uh, that uh, kind of because, you know, like you said earlier, Mike, you know, should you keep John's what he said and all you know, right. give him six and all, you know, how much should you incorporate that into your broadcast? Because that's what Tennessee fans were used to. And so I was, I was mulling how I should do that. And so I was happened to be talking to my dad and he goes, he goes, hot shot. Let me, let me give you a little story. So <laughs> once there was this old man, he had to take some material to this next town and his truck broke down. And so he got this old broken down mule and he loaded all the stuff on the mule and he was going to carry the stuff to the next town. Well, as he's taking the mule down the road, he bumped into this little boy and this little boy wanted to go with him. He said, well, sure. So the old man, the little boy, they're walking down the path. Well, the little boy gets tired and the old man puts him on the donkey and they're going down the path. Well, they get a little bit down the path and a guy comes the other way and said, little boy, I can't believe you're making that old man walk and you're riding on the back of that donkey. So the little boy gets down and the old man gets on the donkey and they go down the path and they get a little bit further. And this guy comes the other way and says, little boy, I can't believe, old man, I can't believe you're riding on the back of that donkey, making that poor little boy walk. And so the old man reaches down and picks up the, 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 the little boy, and they're both riding on the back of the donkey. And they go down the path. Another guy comes along and says, old man, little boy, I can't believe you guys are riding on the back of that old broken-down donkey. That's just not fair. So they both get off, and now they're carrying the donkey. They're carrying the donkey across the bridge, and they lose the grip, and they drop the donkey into the river. And my dad said, you know what the moral of the story is? I said, I have no idea. He said, <laughs> if you try and please everybody, you're going to lose your ass. <laughs> and he said, do the games the way you – they didn't hire John Ward. They hired Bob Kessling. Go do the games the way you know you've been trained to do them. And, uh, and do, you know, Mike, I sat next to – I was John Spotter for 16 years. People mm -hmm. maybe don't, don't know that. But I had a lot of chances to go to some smaller schools in the area uh, to do games – but I thought I would learn more sitting next to John and learning how to do a game, you know, the technical things about it. You know, Mike, you know, there's so many little, it's not just calling the game. You've sure. got to have, you've got to have preparation and you've got to have your spot charts. You got to have a, you got to be ready when things, as you said, when things go wrong and they're going to go wrong, you've got to make sure that you're prepared enough that you can weather those storms and get through it. And I learned how to do that sitting next to John for all those years. So that was a great training ground for me. And, uh, and so I, I wouldn't be where I am right now without John Ward. No question. I, I think everybody needs some type of mentor, somebody you can look up to in this business. If, if you're going to have a, a, a path to success. Um, I want to ask you about current Tennessee and I got to ask you just one more question 
that is not about the present day or future. And that is, you know, you take over on the heels of the, the national championship. So you, you don't get to call that, but you come in right after that. Mm-hmm. But you've had some incredible memories of basketball going back to the, the Bruce Pearl hire for that matter. You've certainly seen some highs and lows in football. And quite frankly, you've seen a lot of drama. I mean, Tennessee in, in, in college football and everything that has happened and gone on, uh, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast. It's a terrific program with a great fan base, but at times it's felt like a reality show. It seems like things are stabilized now. So give me a little bit of the past, your, your high water marks, your, your, your greatest memories while you've been behind the mic as the voice of the balls. And then what are you looking forward to about this season with Hendon Hooker and yeah. year two of Hypo and everything else? It feels like there's just a rejuvenation that's taken right. place over the last 12 months. You know, I think if you go back and you look at um, Coach Fulmer had the greatest decade in the history of Tennessee football in the 90s. And then it kind of unraveled for him. And and as you talk, every time you change coaches, most of the time it's going to take you three. They want three to five years to get things fixed and get things back on the track. And I think what really set Tennessee football back was the situation with Lane Kiffin. When he came in for the one year and left – then suddenly maybe you're six years behind and then you try and figure out who's the right coach. You make a hurried uh, coaching hire doesn't work. And it's about getting the right guy And Tennessee just really struggled finding that right guy. They thought they had the right guy, but it just hasn't worked out from the Jeremy Pruitts and, and Derek Dooley's and all down the list. They just seem to be good hires at the time. They just didn't work out. And that happens a lot in college football. But the Josh Heupel uh, hire and the fact that he had such a close relationship with Danny White at Central Florida, that was a seamless transition. So they didn't have to worry about getting to know each other and what are you going to do and can I trust you and how are you going to handle recruiting and and how are you going to treat your players? All those things that an athletic director has a question about when he hires a new coach, they didn't have that with Josh Heupel. Uh, Heupel came in with a, the offense that he was trying to sell to recruits and to the current players. And then when they suddenly had success, uh, you know, Joe Milton last year clearly won the quarterback job. I mean, there was no doubt. If you went to the scrimmages or to practice, Joe Milton had that wow factor, throwing the football. And you thought, well, wow, I mean, Tennessee's going to really throw the ball around. Well, it didn't translate. And then he gets banged up and Hendon Hooker comes in and just took the job away and didn't give it back. And so suddenly you're having success. They're putting up a lot of points. They're playing Alabama toe-to-toe into the fourth quarter. Uh, Probably should have, could have beaten Ole Miss. And so instead of having a seven-win season, you were looking at maybe a nine- or ten-win season. So that has gotten a lot of energy into this Tennessee program right now. There are a lot of people that are enthused about it. Uh, We've been, as I said, we've been on the Big Orange Caravan and Rick Barnes has been pretty funny talking to Josh Heupel, saying that he's getting a lot of grief because the football team is outscoring the basketball team, and uh, he's trying to he's trying to cope with that. And uh, but that's kind of the way it is. I mean, people, it, it has pumped excitement back into the program. That at least when you go to the game, there's going to be points on the board, and it's going to be exciting. Now, is Tennessee up to? being able to compete game in and game out with the Alabamas and the Georgias and all of those folks, probably not yet because uh, the roster, they lost so many people uh, 
when Josh Heupel came in, people transferred, people just disappeared, didn't come back, all those type things. So the numbers are, are down. They're still down. They're, they're trying to get back up to the 85 and, and beyond. But it's, you can get the numbers, but how is, you, how is the quality of your numbers? And I think that's where Tennessee is right now. They really are confident about where their offense is. And I think they're confident about their frontline guys, defensive guys. But you're going to get injuries. You're going to get guys hurt. So who do you have to plug in to fill up those spots and that's going to decide how good Tennessee's season is next year. How How is their depth, the quality of their depth? And, you know, a lot of teams can say that. But when Tennessee's numbers were so far down and trying to build them back up, that's a tough thing. And uh, so we'll, we'll see exactly how good. And and I, I I don't think Tennessee's done in the transfer portal yet. I think there will be a few other people that they're going to try and they probably need another linebacker. You can always, always use wide receivers and defensive backs. And if you can find a pretty good offensive tackle, you probably need to sign him. So there's a chance that Tennessee's going to add some more folks. Well, Bob, Tennessee. I'm oh, oh, sorry. I know. I was just going to ask Tennessee baseball. Uh, that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, they're having a really good year. And um, I see uh, see some of their games. Crowds look really good. Uh, talk about Tony uh, Vitello and how he's uh, re-energized that program a bit. It has been incredible. And yeah. uh, it started last year and they had these come from behind wins and they're uh, going to the regional and, you know, Tennessee hadn't been to the regionals, you know, in a long since 2005 and the program was pretty much dead. And uh, now suddenly they're putting five and 5,000 people in for Wednesday night games, not wow. weekend games, for Wednesday night games. And you can't get a ticket. No, they were sold out before the season started. Not a single ticket to be had. He's done it like most great baseball coaches doing it by evaluating talent, signing talent, and then developing the talent. Um, I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, but uh, Ben Joyce threw 105 miles an hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 105.5 to be exact. I mean, I, I, I mean, <laughs> don't sure change the guy. And uh, I was doing the game with Cody Hahn yesterday. It was incredible to watch the velocity I mean, you felt almost bad for the Auburn hitters because they've got to stand in against that stuff. Mm. And uh, But uh, he's hired a great pitching coach, Frank Anderson. They've gone out and found talented guys, and they've developed them, and they throw strikes. Uh, they are leading the league in the fewest walks issued. They're leading the league in the fewest uh, hit by batters. Uh, they're leading the league in all these categories. They they have not had a might get this. They have not had a pass ball all season. They're the only team in the league without a passed ball. I mean, you don't think that's a big stat, but that is a big stat. Oh, sure, it is. I mean, it's incredible. Some of these numbers that they've had in terms of not giving other teams anything, and then uh, they've had all these veterans stick around. They had you know Drew Gilbert. He seems he's been around, and, and Luke Lipschitz, they've been around since before Tony got here, it seems like. And then Jordan Beck is developed into a greater. Trey Lipscomb, the third baseman, I think last year he started three games, and now he could be the SEC player of the year because he was, you know, he was a backup third baseman. You know, he had his 17th home run yesterday. He's got 63 RBIs. Or, you know, it's incredible numbers. So they it's a, it's a team that has – uh, really blossomed because they've been developed. They worked hard, and they they and they got veterans, and they've got guys that have been through this before. So, 
And they've had a couple of guys, Ortega, the second baseman. He comes from nowhere. He wasn't a starter last year, and now he's going to be drafted. So it, it's like watching, to be honest with you, it's like watching a minor league baseball team going up against college teams most weekends because they've just they just overmatched these teams. And it's uh, it's just been an unbelievable job that Tony's done. And he had a great uh, – uh, really the reason he got the Tennessee job is his – uh, background as a recruiter when he was at Arkansas and some of these other places and how he developed and evaluated talent there. And he's done that at Tennessee and it's been, uh, it's really been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I, I've shoot. I could do a whole uh, segment on the, where Tennessee baseball was having gone up there and, and seen you and calling games at a, at a mostly empty stadium for, for yes. quite a while and several coaching changes. And it, it felt like a moribund program for about 15 years. And what Vitello has done is, one of the best turnarounds I've ever seen in SEC baseball. And, well, and, and not SEC baseball, college baseball. Yeah, well, you're right. You're right. I, I, yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's broaden the, the spectrum. Uh, nationally speaking, where Tennessee was uh, sustained mediocrity to now a national power, uh, you know, it's not as if they had this major facilities upgrade at Lindsey Nelson Stadium no. over the last 10 years. It's still quite honestly, you know, bottom half of the league, that's going to change. I've talked that's to Vitello being, about and, that. And you're being nice doing that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying. You're right. You, some might say bottom third. Some might say we could keep going. Uh, by the way, quick plug. I've got Tennessee baseball uh, Thursday against Kentucky. I got a game that yeah. 10 years ago would have, wouldn't have seen the light of day on television. Uh, but now, obviously, uh, that that has changed, not not to mention the plus games, you know, the digital games, so on and so forth. Uh, we've only got about 10 minutes. I, I do want to pivot back to football for a moment. And I, I'm kind of a, a football nerd. I, not only did I watch the draft all weekend, but I already looked at the projected picks for next year. Hendon Hooker is on a lot of boards as a first round draft pick. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, a lot can change between now and, and next April. But what do you like? You, you've seen some some good ones go through Knoxville. You've seen some not so good ones. As you mentioned, he wasn't even expected to, to get the job last year. No. What is it you like so much and what type of progress could we see in year two with Hendon Hooker? Uh, his decision making. He takes care of the football. Uh, he has he's I don't I wouldn't say he's a great runner. He's not a Condridge Holloway or Heath Schuler or one of those guys. But he's a smart runner and he knows when to run. And usually he picks up, you know, 10 to 12 yards when he does take off and run. Uh, the players have really, really rallied around him. And I think why they rallied around him is when he lost the job to Joe Milton before the season last year, you know, he didn't come in and throw a fit, didn't go to Coach Heupel and said, I'm leaving, I'm going into the transfer, I'm doing all this kind of stuff. You're treating me. All he did was get in the weight room get in the playbook and worked hard. And I think the players really respected that of him and the fact that he was a great teammate. He was as supportive of Joe Milton as anybody else on the team. And now those guys, you know, and Milton had the same situation after last season. I mean, Milton could have left and he didn't, he stayed. And so now he's, he gets beat out by Hendon Hooker and instead of pouting and throwing a fit, He's working hard to try and beat out Hendon Hooker this year. So that's a really positive pl thing, place to be in your quarterback room. And jo Josh Heupel's talked about that. He said those guys are pushing each other to get better, and that's really a healthy situation. The Cedric Tillman's coming back. Tillman came out of nowhere to be one of the better receivers in the SEC. 
but they've got to find somebody else on the other side. Jalen Hyatt is a slot guy that has all this potential and all this speed, but he's got to be able to run routes and be able to get off the ball. So they've got to find the other receiver on the other side. Uh, they've got some guys returning in the offensive line. They're still trying to figure out their tackle situation. Darnell Wright, whether he'll be left tackle or right tackle. Mincy comes in from Florida. Is he going to be the left tackle or where he's going to fit in? Uh, they've got a, They've lost some guys in the secondary. They lost two guys to the NFL. So they, and Alante Taylor was one of those cover corners that those guys are hard to find. So they got to find one of those. But I, I think from the overall uh, where the roster is this year is probably better than it was last year. And the fact that they also know these players and know what they can do. So uh, there's a lot of optimism around Tennessee football that, uh, you know, maybe they're not going to win the East this year. I think, I don't think anybody really realistically thinks that, but I think they're going to be in the mix. I think they're going to challenge and I think they're going to be competitive. And I, that's right now that's all Tennessee fans want. They just want a competitive, entertaining football team. And I think they have that. That might change in terms of what they want, because you know how fans always resort back to the high water mark and say, well, that should be our expectation every year. And right. it, it took a long time for Tennessee fans to realize we are not in the heyday of Phil Fulmer. Uh, maybe we need to recalibrate. Tennessee's a fascinating story to me in that you don't have the talent-rich uh, numbers of a Georgia, of a Florida uh, of a Louisiana for that matter. And so you really have to recruit nationally. And obviously when Phil had it going high, that's what they did. But when I think of Tennessee at its high water mark, and again, this is what I want to get back to and final question for me, for all the great offensive stars and, and the list is long to come through Knoxville. When I think of their, their championship team and, and their SEC championship teams recently, I think of some great defenses and right now, like they might put up a lot of points again, much like Ole Miss has done under Lane Kiffin. If I was a Tennessee fan, my big question is, what are we going to do to get back to a salty, hard-nosed, physical, you-don't-want-to-play-Tennessee's defense? How, how far away is Tennessee from getting to that point? I think that's the question, Mike. And I think last year, for example, you know Matthew Butler gets drafted this year into the NFL. But Matthew Butler last year was playing 70 to 80 snaps in all the games. Well, how many defensive tackles do that? No, no nobody. Well, that just tells you where Tennessee was depth-wise because they really didn't have anybody behind Matthew Button. Now, Matthew wanted to play that many snaps, but you know in the fourth quarter, he couldn't be as effective as if he played 40 snaps. So uh, when your offense is cranking out 100 plays a game, the other team's got a bunch of plays as well, and you have to have depth on defense. I, I think they've got a couple of guys. Uh, Tyler Barron had a good year. Uh, Byron Young is another guy that really had a good year last season. Jeremy Banks uh, really emerged as a good quality linebacker for Tennessee. So it's not like the cupboard is bared. Uh, but I, I, I do take it back to the fact I, I'm more concerned about the depth than I am about the first-line guys. I think they'll find enough guys that can play SEC football. But you've got to have that second tier, maybe even the third tier, when you're playing as many snaps as Tennessee plays. I do think it'll be interesting when, you know, you and I remember when the East was the dominant division in this conference, it, it was there for a while. And then all of a sudden the West just has dwarfed it. And it seems like simultaneously programs in the Eastern division all went through a downturn. Maybe that's about to trend upward and, and maybe Tennessee is because we know where George is not going anywhere, but maybe no. Tennessee is part of the programs that start to trend back upward. 
Well, I think it, it's the stability in the coaching staffs. I, I think there has to be some continuity. And you look at the East, uh, you know, Kentucky's got some stability now, but everybody else seems like they're scrambling to figure mm-hmm. out who our coach is going to be and, and, you know, where's our recruiting base and all those times. You know, Florida's kind of in transitional period now. Uh, Tennessee thinks they've got the right guy. They hope they got the right guy. South Carolina hopes they got the right guy. Mm-hmm. So it is a transitional period right now, I think, in the East. Uh, but, you know, Georgia's still the top dog, and somebody's got to beat those guys. And uh, and that's that's who they're chasing right now. And, I, and, you, and you know that Florida's going to have good players. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a matter of can they – the chemistry and, and how they blend at Florida because they're kind of like LSU. They're, every year those two schools are going to have great talent. Can they put it all together? Can they find a quarterback? Can they do the little things to win games? But there's never a question about talent at those two schools. No, and in the case of Tennessee and South Carolina now with Hooker and and Rattler, I mean, it looks like they finally have their quarterbacks where they feel good about it. And you really have to have that in this day and age. If you don't have a – yeah, you can win without one. No, you can't play college football these days without a quarterback. And Mm -hmm. and I I don't care – what school you're at. If you don't have good quarterback play, you're not going to win. Right. And that's why it's so hard. That's why the competition is out there. So great to find a quarterback. And when you get one, you better hold on to them and protect them. And that's why it's so important for Tennessee to shore up the offensive line. Cause uh, you know, hooker did get hit a lot last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spun out a lot of problems, but he did get hit a lot. And you don't want a guy like Kenan Hooker getting hit that much this year. No, not at all. I think it's going to be fascinating. Second through sixth in the SEC East. Good luck trying to predict where everybody's going to finish there. But certainly Tennessee fans are hoping to at least secure that two hole uh, with, with the enthusiasm, the optimism coming off of last year. Bob, can't thank you enough. Like I said, I've always been a fan of your work. I appreciate all the conversations we've had over the years. I haven't seen you as much lately with a lot of the remote broadcasts that we're doing. No. Uh, but I'm sure I'll see you in Knoxville at a game sometime soon. And um, keep calling them great. And uh, hopefully we can talk to you down the road. Look forward to it. Mike, JC, thanks a lot. Pleasure being with you today. Thanks, so, Bob. You got it. Take thank care, you, Bob. Guys.